Ezekiel chapter 1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, when I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on the four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel, intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of the wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on that throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is the first week of a series that we're calling Apocalypse, and uh, it was an idea that I had uh, about a year ago to... Um, kind of inspired by the idea that the Mayan calendar is going to end and uh, everyone's going to be filled with fear and trepidation somewhere around December 20th. Is it December 20th? Am I right? All you Mayan calendar fans, everyone's saying not the 20th, but the 16th, 13th, 
21st. <laughs> Your numbers are backwards. Um, okay, so, so, so this series was inspired by uh, this idea that are, are, here in a, a couple months, our, our culture will most likely be uh, focused on this, sort of, this idea of apocalypse. And, and there's some apocalyptic books, there's some prophetic books in the Bible. And so I thought we would spend uh, from this morning until the rest of the year uh, looking at these books. And, and here's, here's sort of the, the premise behind the series is this, that yes, there's some like really weird and crazy imagery, uh, but uh, my, what, I want to, what I want to say to you and my contention is that these books are not meant to fill us with fear, but rather with hope. And so uh, we're going to be looking at these uh, this morning. And, and in fact, what we, what we just heard was uh, from the prophet Ezekiel, and we're going to spend four weeks in Ezekiel, spend three weeks in Daniel, and then, three, then four weeks in Revelation to end the year. And in fact, uh, let me just say uh, the very first commercial, we're going to have a Christmas outreach event on December December 16th uh, called Cosmic Christmas, and I'm going to be giving a Christmas message out of the book of Revelation. So uh, that's just a a teaser of what uh, we're going to do this Christmas, and I'm really, really excited about it. Cosmic Christmas, December 16th, uh, it's going to happen, and it's going to be great, okay? Uh, so what we just heard was from the prophet Ezekiel, and uh, he was called into uh, called to speak into the life of Israel, God's people, as a nation during a time when, as a nation, Israel was a very disobedient people, and, and so he was. Uh, called to speak to a disobedient nation uh, at a particular time in history, at a particular place, uh, and and all of these good things. And so this imagery, while weird, is actually unprecedented uh, in any other prophetic books that we have, but it has meaning for us today. Uh, so in other words, uh, when, you, when you read commentaries or when you study, or as I was studying this passage, uh, the general consensus was, we've never heard of anything like this, and it's, it's quite bizarre. But here's what we can begin to, to get from the text, okay? And so we're going to walk through it this morning. I've brought my trusty whiteboard uh, so that you all can see my, uh, you know, awesome artistic skill. And you'll laugh later when you see it. Um, okay, so Ezekiel, in chapter 1, right off the bat, is given a vision of heaven as it is today, not as it one day will be. And that's really important for us to understand because uh, a lot of people understand prophetic books such as Ezekiel as, as everything is future-oriented. Everything is, is telling the future. Everything is as it's going to be. But what happens is, is we've got to understand that these prophetic books uh, are not just future-oriented. They're not just pointing us ahead. In fact, uh, in fact, to say that would mean that these prophecies that happened many, many years ago, thousands of years ago, uh, were, happened in a vacuum, right? But what we understand is that these, these prophecies that are written down, uh, and they're written after an oral history, in other words, they were memorized and shared by memory orally, then they're later written down. These prophecies uh, are, were, were given to a particular audience at a particular time in history. And, and they, they were meant to inspire something in that original audience. And so when we come to prophetic literature and when we come to apocalyptic literature, it's really important to not to, to understand it in context. In other words, don't, to, to not think that it just exists in a vacuum. Are you with me? Okay. So the, the great thing about God's prophetic word, though, is that just as it was meaningful 
for the original audience. God's word and God's prophecy can span the thousands of years and be meaningful for us today. So even when we come to some the, this weird imagery and even when we, when we read this and, and we're like creatures and four faces and, and something about wheels and fire and lightning uh, and all of that, we can take this imagery, this, this prophecy, and begin to unpack it and realize that it has incredible meaning for us today. And so that's what we want to do, okay? So are you guys with me? You guys ready to explore this uh, crazy passage? Yeah, yeah, a couple of you. Very good. Okay, so... It begins by saying that the wind comes from the north, and the north is significant. So we get about a few words into Ezekiel, and we realize that already the imagery is beginning. It says, uh, let's see, starting with verse 4, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north. Now north, as we all know, is one of the uh, four principal marks on a compass. That's easy, north, south, east, west. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, God is, is throughout scripture known as bringing enemies from the north. And so already uh, the, we, we understand that uh, in, in Israel's history, Babylon comes and attacks them from the north. Uh, Assyria comes from the north. Uh, you know, so right from the very beginning, we get a sense that this book may not be a lot of fun, uh, that, that there's a windstorm coming from the north. And for the original audience, that immediately would have, a bell would have gone off and, and they would have begun to understand this book means trouble uh, that, because trouble comes from the north. Uh, the Lord brings trouble from the north. They know that. They, they've seen that. It's, it's happening. And, and so right off the bat, we get a sense that what Ezekiel is called to do and the word of prophecy that he is called to give to a disobedient nation is not going to be, hey, God's people, great job, right? I, I mean, we, right from the very beginning, we get a sense that this is not going to be a, a, a very... Um, how should I say it? Encouraging book or uplifting book. But again, it has incredible meaning for us. In fact, repeated in the theme, repeat, a repeated theme throughout the beginning of the book, if, in fact, if we were to read chapters 2 and 3 and 4, uh, is this. God calls Ezekiel to speak and he says this. Speak my words to them, them, that is Israel, whether they listen or whether they fail to listen. For they are a rebellious people. There's a windstorm coming from the north. And then the theme that comes over and over again is speak my word to them. He's calling his prophet to be faithful and obedient and speaking the word that he has for them because whether they listen or whether they fail to listen, for they are rebellious people. And in fact, let me just give you a sweeping view of what Ezekiel is like. Ezekiel is 47 chapters long. 32 of those chapters are speaking judgment against the nation of Israel. And some of you are like, I'm not going to come back next week. <laughs> Great job, and I'll see you in three weeks, okay? Ezekiel is 47 chapters long. 32 of those chapters are spent pronouncing judgment on Israel. There is trouble brewing in the north. And man, what, we've, what we learn after that is that, that it's, not just, it's, just, it's not just God sending enemies from the north, Babylon and Assyria, but from the imagery that's in the windstorm. We understand that God himself, this time, is also coming from the north. 
In fact, pick up on some of this imagery. It's the same imagery as the end of the chapter. For those of you that are really good listeners, you may have picked up on this, but the same imagery at the end of the chapter is, is, also, used to, is also used to describe the one who sits on the throne. It's lightning, it's brilliant light, it's fire, it's glowing metal. And, and right here it says, in the windstorm, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by a brilliant light and in the center of the fire, what looked like glowing metal. It's the exact same imagery to, to, that describes the one who sits on the throne. And we know that the one who sits on the throne that's above the four living creatures is God. And so what we understand right from the beginning is not, is there not, not just that there's trouble brewing in the north, but this time God himself is coming and is in and is coming from the north, is in the firestorm. And the picture is already developing that God is coming in judgment against his disobedient nation of Israel. Now, before we get too far, I want to speak a word about judgment. Because if we were to, um, if we were to understand judgment, that, that God is just on a rampage of punishment. If we were to understand judgment, that God is, is just being mean in the judgment. Then when we come to biblical books like Ezekiel, that, that are chapter after chapter after chapter of judgment then that would formulate for us a very particular message about God and a very particular uh, picture of God. And in fact, I would imagine that there's some of you here today that you see God as as just a a, a mean person in the sky that's, that's looking out to just catch you doing something wrong so that he can bring his judgment on you. And, and I want to tell you the same message that I told the kids and that is that God is not just, uh, not just a mean guy. The purpose of judgment is not just for God to, to, to wipe punishment all over. But rather the purpose of judgment is always a call to repentance. Does that make sense? I, ho- I hope some of you heard that today. Some of you have a particular picture of who God is and, and you just see him as a mean guy waiting to strike you with that lightning and ready to burn you with that fire, right? And, and I hope you understand that the purpose of judgment is always, always a call to repentance. That, that God is not just this mean guy in the sky. And in fact, we see this over and over and over in prophetic books. And we see it in apocalyptic books. We see it in Ezekiel. This book is no different. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18, after calling Ezekiel and saying that repeat theme over and over. Be faithful to speak my word. Speak my word to them. They are a disobedient people. And whether they listen or whether they refuse to listen, that's up to them. But Ezekiel, as my prophet, I'm calling you to be obedient. And then after all of this, this repeated theme, Ezekiel 3, 18, when I say to the wicked, you will surely die and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them. This is God speaking to Ezekiel. And you do not speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their lives. Those wicked people will die for their sins. And you, I will hold you accountable for their blood. Uh, again, God is holding Ezekiel to a very high standard of accountability and obedience. You must speak this word to them or I will hold you accountable for their blood. But in there is this idea that we will speak to them in order to save their lives. Judgment is not God just seeking to wipe people out that he doesn't like. Judgment is a call to repentance. Does that make sense this morning? 
Let me give you another example. Ezekiel 14 says, Say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord says. This is after 14 chapters of speaking judgment on Israel. Say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Repent and churn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. And so judgment is always at its heart a call to repentance, a call to turn back to God, a call to turn back to our creator. And also when we understand judgment, that it's not just punishment, but judgment is a way of God sorting things out and bringing everything back to right. And for some people that reject God, that will mean bad news. That will mean punishment. But, but essentially what God, the heart of God is repentance. The heart of God is sorting things out. The heart of God is redemption and, and, and repentance and bringing things back together as the way they were supposed to be. And so when we understand judgment in that light, we can begin to look at this book of Ezekiel with 37 chapters of judgment and see that after those 37 chapters are a word of hope to Israel. That through all of this judgment, Israel will be restored. God's heart is always repentance. God's heart is always renewal. And God's not just being mean, but he's putting things back to right. And he's sorting them out. And in fact, we get the clearest picture of this in Ezekiel chapter 37. When we're given a vision of a valley of dry bones that represents the emptiness and the hopelessness of Israel. And we're given this picture of, of bones that, that not only uh, have no, no flesh or ligaments around them, but they're dry and they're brittle. They're not just bones, they're brittle bones, right? And we get this, this, this picture of an entire valley of these brittle, dry bones. And what God does is he begins to strengthen the bones, bring flesh, ligament, muscle, and then eventually breathing life into these bones so that they become a vast army. You see, the purpose of judgment is not God being mean. The purpose of judgment is God restoring and putting things back to right. It's taking the, the dry valley, the hopelessness of our lives without him and bringing hope and breathing new life out of that. Are you with me? This is the beauty this is the beauty of God's prophetic word. Well, God is not coming out of the north, though, by himself, right? We have these four living creatures uh, where the bulk of the chapter uh, that we just read is, is, is used describing these and, and these wheels. And so I've, I've, uh, I've entitled this message, Wind, Wings, Wheels, and Worship. Because those are the four primary images that we're given in this chapter. And so I want to do our best to picture this. And uh, I, again, I want to uh, apologize in advance for my artistic prowess. Um, but here we go. Let's do our best to picture this. We have four creatures, each with wings that are touching one another. Now, uh, so let's, uh, let's take a top-down view of, of these creatures. Okay? Because I can only draw in one dimension. So let's say that these are the head. <laughs> so if you are an artist, there is a place at Emmaus Road for you, okay? Okay, so let's say this is the head, and these are the wings kind of coming out like this, right? That's the bed. That's all I got, okay? So work with me, all right? There's four of them. No doubt 
God's angelic creatures are more beautiful than this, okay? Here's the four creatures. Now, what we're, we're given a particular detail. It says that their wings are touching. And if they were in a line, now this is all significant, right? If they were in a line, then all sides are not touching. Ha, 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 right? I promise you, some of you are like, where's he going with this? This, this is going to be so cool at the end. You guys are going to be amazed. So let's reorient our angelic choir so that all the wings are touching, as the scripture tells us. Here's a head. Here's a head. Here's a head. Right here. Whoops. That one. Okay. And then all the wings. That's not a wing. That's not a head. That's a wing. All the wings are touching. They're in a square. (laughs) You were reading this passage and you had no idea what it meant, but they're in a square. Okay. Isn't that awesome? Awesome. Their faces, they each have four faces. Let's say this is the human face. We're given this detail that the human face is always facing forward. So the human face is always facing in this direction. And then there's three other faces. A lion, an ox, and an eagle. Okay? So there we have the four faces. And then there was fire that was moving back and forth among them. Pretty cool. Now, the immediate question arises what in the world are these four creatures in the form of a square? And Ezekiel chapter 10 gives us a really important hint and, and, and leads us to the conclusion that these are angelic creatures or protectors of God's throne. Remember, God himself is coming from the north, the blazing fire, the brilliant light. God himself is coming from the north, but in the, in the windstorm, there are also four creatures, and we're given all these details about their faces and their wings, and they're all touching. So God himself, with his, this... this uh, These four creatures, the angelic creatures, the protectors of his throne, meant to represent all of creation. They have a human face, and then the sort of king from each sort of animal species, the ox, the lion, the eagle, each king's in their own right, representing all of creation. So this angelic creature, these protectors of God's throne that represent God's presence is moving with God from the north. Okay? And this... Then what happens in Ezekiel chapter 10 is Ezekiel refers to them as a cherubim, not a baby with angel's wings, okay? Cherubim, the Renaissance just ruined that for us. But, so, so, but cherubim in the scripture is always angelic creatures that represent for us the very presence of God. Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 15. Then the cherubim rose upward, and these were the living creatures that I had seen by the Kabar River in, in chapter 1. Cherubim first appear in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, when they guard the way to the tree of life after sin has entered the world. And so what happens is the people... the, the The angelic creatures are sort of ushering with God, and it says that they're moving perfectly in sync with one another. Wherever the spirit goes, the creatures go. Uh, They're they're, they're moving in in perfect sync with one another. And then outside of their appearance, we only get two things. We only get two details. Each one went forward without churning around. Now, I want you to picture this. This is why it's important that they're in a square. 
If these living creatures represent for us the very presence of God because they are the protectors of God's throne, the angelic creatures, and each one moves forward, but their wings are always touching and they never turn around, then guess what? The square is always getting bigger. And if they together represent God's presence for us, this imagery wants to tell somebody here that the presence and the activity of God is not limited. Is not there, it is without limit. Some of us try to keep God precisely in this box. And God wants to say to some of you today that his activity, the way in which he works in your life, his presence in your life is without limit. It is absolutely limitless. When you thought he was absent, he was there. When you couldn't see him working, he was working. When you were in the midst of all that trouble, he was, and, you were, and you were declaring, where is God? His angelic throne was ever growing, ever increasing, always moving forward in the same direction. There is absolutely no limit to the presence and the activity of God. And then these four living creatures are, are moving with the Spirit. And, and the Greek here is not only one of being perfectly in sync, but it's, it's one of saying that these creatures are animated or powered by the Spirit of God. It's some really incredible imagery. But I think this message to us about the presence of God being unlimited in our life has huge implications if we'll really get a handle on that. Like when you were walking away from God and you were rejecting him and you were questioning whether he was there, his presence was there. Well, then we're given pictures of wheels. So we have wind from the north. We have wings, the angelic creatures that are always increasing. God's presence, God's activity is not limited in our lives. And then we have the wheels. And again, let's try to picture this. Uh, the wheels are described. There's each, care, or each uh, living creature has a wheel in front of them and all of this kind of idea. Uh, and, and the wheels are described as wheels intersecting wheels. And I want you to picture this. If this is a wheel, then this one can go this in these directions. And then this wheel can go in this direction. And all of a sudden we have what looked like, looks like a compass. Ha, ha, ha coming from the north, but the wheels intersecting a wheel. Can you guys see that on this end? Can you guys see it? Okay. Um, the idea here is that the main idea here is mobility. That not only is God's presence and God's activity not limited, but that God is actively moving through creation. This imagery is important for us because it gives us a picture of who God is. And just as we have to understand judgment as God sorting things out and God bringing things back to right, 
And that ultimately judgment is a call to repentance and God sorting things out in our life. There's a possibility that some of you have understood that, that God created the world. You're on board with that. But with all the mess that you and I go through in life, there's a possibility you might have come to believe that God is absent. That he created this place and is now just letting it run rampant. And this, this imagery of these, these four living creatures in the presence of God being ever growing. And then with them, this, this wheel moving in every direction. This idea of mobility and God moving through creation. Some of you need to know today that, that God is moving into your life. God is moving through this creation. That, that God has not just created and then forgotten Because if we come to believe that God has just created the world and then abandoned it and left it to its own being, then there's a pretty good chance that we'll we'll also come to believe that God has forgotten us. And church, we cannot come to believe that. That God loves you so deeply and so intimately, we cannot believe for a second that God has forgotten about you. You may have forgotten about him. You may have rejected him. You may have walked away from him. You may have forgotten him. But God has not forgotten you. And God has not forgotten creation. That you, in the midst of your disobedience, in the midst of the brokenness of this world and creation, God is still, this imagery teaches us that God is sweeping through the world. God is moving through creation. God has not forgotten you, and God has not forgotten this place. And that has all kinds of important implications for our lives. And it gives us a picture of who God really is. Because again, I think so many times, especially when we start talking about apocalypse, especially when we talk, start talking about prophetic literature, all of a sudden God changes and we go from New Testament Jesus to like this Old Testament mean God. It's the same God all the way through. His heart never changes. It's not like God is mean in the Old Testament and then Jesus comes and God changes his mind and says, oh, I guess that didn't work. The way to do it is be nice. That's not it at all. God's heart has always been the same. God's heart has always been about redemption, bringing us back, calling us in, moving through creation, widening his presence in this world and in our life. So we have wind, wings, wheels, and then worship. Above the creatures is a vault. Above the vault is a throne. And on the throne was the figure of a man. Now, this is really interesting. In fact, if you're reading it, you would wonder, why in the world is a man on the throne? Why wouldn't it be God? But then we get all this imagery that speaks to the presence of God with fire and brilliant light. And then we also have to call to memory Genesis 1.27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then in the, in the throne, there's fire. And throughout scriptures, there is meant, fire is meant to represent the glory of the Lord or the Lord's presence. Same for the brilliant light. Uh, whenever someone in the Bible meets uh, an angelic creature or the presence of God, there's this brilliant blinding light. And so we have on the throne, there appears a figure of a man. And, 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 and from the waist above, he appears to be on fire like glowing metal. There's also this brilliant light uh, uh, around him. And then we get this detail. There is a rainbow or a bow. 
some translations say, as if it were a rainy day or the bow that would come after a rainy day. And the rainbow is a symbol of God's promise to Noah to not destroy the earth again. Some read the Noah story and say that God will not destroy the earth by flood again. And that's the covenant and that's the rainbow. But you better watch out because there's an apocalypse coming where God is going to destroy this earth. We're all going to be disembodied into a disembodied heaven and, and go up there, out there somewhere. But God's promise to Noah is in Genesis eight twenty one, and then later in that chapter and into chapter 9, he gives his covenant with the rainbow. But it says this, God smelled the pleasing aroma of the burnt offering that Noah was offering. And he said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of human beings. And even though every inclination of their heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Here's the picture that we get from the, from the man on the throne, the God on the throne. He says, it's this, the Lord promises to sustain creation despite the trouble brewing in the north. Does that make sense? God promises to sustain creation despite the trouble brewing in the north. In fact, here's the picture that we get from this chapter. Are you ready? Ezekiel chapter 1 summarized. God and his unlimited presence and activity is moving through the world in judgment, but judgment is not a punishment, but a sorting out. And then an awesome, awe-inspiring, powerful God depicted with fire and light has not forgotten his creation. God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned creation, and God has not abandoned you. He is always seeking to renew and restore and redeem, and God's judgment is ultimately a call for us to repent in light of who he is, in light of this brilliant fire, in light of this brilliant light, God's call to us is to repent and to walk in his promises, to walk in his light, to walk in his way, demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ, to move from being estranged from our creator, to being in relationship with our creator. And guess what? After Ezekiel says all this, and he sees the almighty one, and he sees the worthy one and he sees the one who is everlasting and 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 who the one who loves us deeply the one who desires relationship with him ezekiel having seen this heavenly vision not as it one day will be but as it currently is and as the world is right now ezekiel's response is the same response that you and i should have the same response that we are called to this morning and that is one of worship where we see God for who he really is. We see him in all of his brilliance and all of his glory through this imagery, his ever-increasing presence, his mobility of moving through creation. And we see him and we respond in worship. Ezekiel says, when I saw this, I fell face down. Face down is a posture of reverence and submission. Reverence and submission. That Ezekiel seeing this brilliant vision of the glory of God fell face down in worship. 
You know, during this time in history, if you had met a ruler from another country or from your own country, you would bow face down to them to show them honor, to show them respect. And it was a way of symbolizing your submission to their rule. And anytime someone in scripture encounters the presence of God, they fall face down. You never hear, they, they came into the presence of God and they fell back. You never hear that. Every time in scripture, when we see the presence of God and we're drawn to worship, they fall face down in reverence of who he is and in submission to his ways. And in a very real way, that's what this vision calls us to today. This prophetic vision meant for a disobedient Israel is every bit as meaningful and as powerful for you and I today. And the response is the same. For us to fall face down in reverence of who God is And worship him. And in fact, this week, I want to challenge many of you to join me in praying face down before God. It may feel awkward. It may be downright uncomfortable. But what if we were to demonstrate with our bodies what we hope to do with our hearts? And that is to give full submission to God. And so this week, as a, as, a, as a next step and as a result of, of listening and hearing and understanding on some level this vision that Ezekiel is given, may we together as a community fall face down before God in reverence to who he is. But when it comes to worship, it's, uh, it's very easy to worship in controlled settings. It's very easy to show reverence to God when you're at church surrounded by like-minded people and people that are also wanting to sing and, and worship and, and uh, clap and celebrate. It's a whole other thing to show reverence and honor for God on Monday morning when you go to work, when you go to school. When you see that neighbor, right? Then it can be a lot harder. It's interesting to me that this incredible vision is given to Ezekiel in private. Uh, this isn't something that Ezekiel is on a street corner and he's seeing all this and he's uh, declaring it out loud as he sees it. He's not giving a play-by-play of the vision that he's given. Uh, and in fact, the written version says uh, all of these sort of modifiers and these qualifiers. It was something like, and it was sort of like this, and, and I, I think it was like that. Uh, in other words, we're not given this sort of exact vision. Uh, this is just as Ezekiel can describe it or as Ezekiel can remember it. He's given this vision privately. But he's given this vision privately for the purpose of going public with the call that God, that God has placed on his life to speak to a disobedient Israel. And so in, in, in a very real sense, he is to move his worship from the private sector to the public sector. 
And just as, as you and I are to hear this vision and this imagery and respond with worship for, in, in reverence for the Almighty God, I think that some of you need today, today need, to, need to understand that while it's easy for you to show reverence and honor and worship to God in this setting, God is calling you to take that worship and that honor and that reverence out there, outside of these walls, and, and show reverence to God in the public sector. Now, I'm not talking about grabbing your bullhorn and finding the nearest street corner so you can preach. I'm talking about just demonstrating to God while in public your, your reverence and your heart for him. And that may be something very simple, like praying at a meal before, before a meal while you're at a restaurant. Right? Some of you are a little embarrassed to do that. What will the waiter think? Or I don't want to embarrass the waiter. They might come up while we're praying. So maybe it's something simple like that. Maybe it's something more powerful. Like maybe, maybe there's a, a coworker or a fellow student that maybe thinks you're a Christian, but they're not sure, and they, they want to ask you a question. And, and uh, anytime it comes up, you just kind of change the subject. And God wants you to, to move to the public sector and begin to have that conversation and share your faith with someone. I don't know what it is for you today, but, but I think together if we fell face down to God in worship and if we, if we stopped being so private or only private with our worship and our reverence and began to show God in the public space how we love and honor him, then I believe that God's presence would move powerfully through this community as together we decide to do that.